You're listening to the Unstoppable Business Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lee. Jason, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Brian, it is a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Pleasure's all mine, man. True honor to have you. So, uh, Jason, I guess when people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? Uh, not very easily. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I mean, the simplest explanation is digital marketing is my jam. I like to teach and create solutions for people that want to use the internet to make money online, basically. Uh, our primary way in which we help clients is twofold. One of them is in the Amazon space. So we really help physical product sellers do better on Amazon or get started on Amazon. And the other side of the space is in the thought leadership space. So it's somebody who's an expert at a subject matter can create knowledge products. And then how do you sell those? I like to use webinars to sell those most often. So teaching people how to use webinars to sell information products, software, training program, group coaching, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that is kind of my unique expertise. I believe that I love to sell things. <laughs> awesome and awesome. So what is it that keeps you so passionate about these fields for so long, Jason? I know you've been involved in these fields for a while. Yes, yeah, so I've been in the game for about 12 years and I'm 36. So that's like a third of my life at this point, I guess you would say. Yeah. And, you know, two things that keep me passionate. First is the money's insane. Um, I like <laughs> right. I like the amount of money that I can make doing this. And certainly mm -hmm. there's always room for more money to be made. Uh, and that's important to me. And it's not just for like materialistic reasons, but obviously it's it's better to be in abundance than to be in scarcity. And it's better to have options and really plan for more than just yourself. I mean, goal number one in life is to make enough money to take care of yourself. Goal number two is to make enough money to take care of you and somebody else. Goal number three is then to take care of the family. So I have uh, three children, right? And two dogs and two cats. So, and then after that is take care of, you know, community, take care of noble charitable types of things and then have enough to pass it on to the next uh, legacy. There's when you add all that up, Brian, it takes a lot of money to do that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so that's like the big passion yeah. for me is I am not limited to the amount of money I can make based on the opportunity. I can utilize opportunity to make as much money as I think makes sense. The second reason is I always, there's always something interesting and new. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's maddening that what maybe was important last year is no longer important this year. Uh, oh, but on wow. the other hand, it's exhilarating that there's always new opportunities to innovate and to have breakthrough and disruption. And that's kind of, I've always been that way since I can remember is a contrarian, a disruptor. And I like to engineer unique groundbreaking solutions. And I've done that a few times in my career. And that's always, it's powerful to see what everybody else is missing, design a solution for it, and then put it in the marketplace. So that's always going to be fun. And that's really cool, man. Um, so I guess, when did you discover that you were a disruptor? You know, like you wanted to create original stuff. Was this at a young age? So I got kicked out of preschool when I was three. Um, <laughs> that was probably the first time I've had an issue with doing things wow. the normal conventional way. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, I don't like 
those types of settings. Uh, I don't like to be in settings unless I can run it. Um, that's kind of always been my attitude. And, and so I've always just been completely outside of the norm. Um, institutional settings I don't do very well in, but I do very well in areas where I can be creative. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I think it's just part of my DNA of who I am as an individual. Now for most of my life, it caused me a lot of grief. <laughs> really? So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that I never, I always had this feeling that if everybody was doing it, then there was something wrong with it. Um, you know, obviously it's hard to live an extra, extraordinary life if you do things ordinarily. And so ordinary to me was always an issue. The fact that the teachers teaching us in the school system were making barely above minimum wage and didn't seem to be too happy with where they were at in life was a good indicator for me, Brian, that they are not somebody to model. So therefore, I took Mm. their teaching with lots of grains of salt. (laughs) But you know what? I always felt that I could teach better than they could teach. Um, And I wasn't always right. Oftentimes I was wrong, but I always felt that if you gave me enough space and opportunity, I could teach uh, more effectively. And clearly I've always gravitated towards that in my life. And so I was, I've been able to be very effective at teaching, but my, my father was a teacher. Um, and so I, I saw how he taught and he did well, but he didn't make much money. Uh, and he didn't seem to enjoy some of the administration and some of the other issues involved. And so I thought, you know, I want to teach, but I want to teach in a way where I can have more impact provide more value. And then of course, as a result, make more money and then teach things that I get to teach the way I want to teach, how I want to teach and to who I want to teach them. And really that was it. But I just, I have never ever felt comfortable following things as opposed to creating things. So I'm very, very, it's not that I don't follow things because certainly I do, but it has to really justify itself. And I put it through the ringer before I decide whether to keep it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. So how did this, um, how did this bring up trouble as you were growing up? Um, this, this need to like create things, um, did yeah, it help you a, in a lot of ways? It, it did, it, it could, it did help me in some ways. So like I started writing lyrics, um, and music, creating music when I was seven or eight years old. Um, and that was a positive form of expression for me. It was a good way to channel my creativity into something that was, and then, and, and I would perform, I remember performing music when I was eight or nine years old in front of an audience and rapping in front of audiences and things like that That's throughout crazy. my childhood. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I learned how to write HTML when I was 14. So I was in 1997. I learned how to program um, and run in this use computers. And that was really cool. I mean, the downside was obviously like, and I remember in third grade, they moved my uh, desk out into the hall because I had like a social problem with dealing with other kids my age and wow yeah uh you know in fourth grade I had issues in fifth grade by by the time I got to seventh grade I kind of gave up on fighting the system and just but I was miserable you know I went to to college for a semester I had a 3.4 and I I always had straight A's for the most part one B or two and that was it but mostly A's um but like I dropped out of college in a semester after a semester and I had a 3.4 grade point average and nobody had ever seen in, I went to Iowa state. Nobody had ever seen anybody drop out with a, with a 3.4 grade point average. And I was already a teacher's assistant uh, by the second semester. 
uh, in college on a 300 level philosophy class. <laughs> they never seen wow. that before, right? Oh, yeah. uh, so on the, on the upside, <laughs> I like never followed any of the, the established rules. On the downside, some, sometimes there's a reason for having rules. <laughs> and I right. should have followed them and I didn't and it caused me a lot of problems. Hmm. I see. <laughs> so Jason, when, when did it um, spark uh, your passion for uh, this space, you know, like starting into webinars, turning into like the Amazon space. When did that start happening? So like I started and so the other issue uh, that I was going to bring up is I never wanted to work a typical job and I never really could hold a typical job down because again, uh-huh. it was just like an institutional type of thing. So I right. struggle with those. Um, so I started getting really serious about trying to make a music career, um, create and produce an album and go out there and sell it and try to make my living as an entertainer. And I just couldn't make that work. It was just so hard. So I started studying business because I never really studied business until then. That wasn't one of the things that was interesting to me. And I was about 21 at the time, right? Uh, so then I started studying business and marketing and uh, just music and psychology of consumer psychology. Um, and I found that I was more fascinated in the concepts of marketing and consumer psychology in business than I was about music. And up until that point, music, was probably the thing I was most passionate about. So I said, you know what, I want to get, uh, I, you know, my original plan was to make enough money doing marketing to fuel and funnel into my music career because I felt like I needed more capital. But what had happened was I was more interested in the marketing, but I really liked mm. the internet. Like as far mm. as I can remember, I was on a computer, which was abnormal in like 1986 when I was three years old. We had an wow. Apple II computer. Uh, not because we had any money, because we certainly didn't. We were very, very broke. But my dad was a teacher at a high school, and he taught basic computer processing. So the, the school gave us a computer at home. Uh, so I was three years old, and they, there was no graphical interfaces back then, Brian. So you had to run command prompts in order to boot up a system. So I'm a three-year-old wow. kid running yeah. command prompts. Uh, <laughs> and so I always, I was really the first generation that could have feasibly lived through computers their whole life and i took advantage of that and so i was and like i told you i, I learned how to HTML, do write html and code at the age of 14 self-taught because if you wanted to really do anything online you, you had to write code back then um so i figured marketing on the internet made sense i loved the internet the internet was such a fabric of my life promoting music on the internet creating music with computer and digital technology and so i was like let me do the internet marketing stuff I just couldn't make that work. It's like 2006. Everything I tried to do, I was failing. And I was working a day job just to make ends meet at the time. I was painting houses for 12 bucks an hour. Wow. Uh, miserable existence. Mm. So I was like, you know, let me just replace that. So what really stumbled onto for me was at the time, everybody was writing articles for a website called Easy and Articles. And Google had a love affair with them. They'd send them a bunch of traffic if you wrote an article. So I would write articles for other people and they'd pay me money. I was a ghostwriter. And I started making decent money, like 15 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, 30, 40 bucks an hour, because the faster I could write the articles, the more money I could make. Um, and, and I did that and, and did really well with that for like six months. And then I finally was like, and I knew I should have done this sooner, Brian, but I was like, I should teach other people how to do what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. So I taught how to write articles fast. Because at that point in time, I, got, I could write an article on any subject. So I built this little system in like seven to 10 minutes. Um, from scratch without any previous knowledge on the topic. Now these weren't like ultra 
amazing award-winning articles. They were search engine food. <laughs> they were pretty right. good. They were okay, but they were made yeah. so that people could be found on the search results and then go back to somebody's website. At the end, the article, you could write a little bio box that says, for more information, go here, right? Uh, so I taught people. Most people at the time were writing articles and they were for the same quality of article I was writing, it would take them 30 to 60 minutes and I can get them down to like seven to 15 minutes. And so I, I, I created a little information product and it was $4. That's what we, mm. that's what I sold it for. Okay. Uh, four measly <laughs> tiny dollars. Yeah. And back then there was a forum. It was called the warrior forum. It was, and I, it, I don't know if it is today, but back then it was the biggest internet marketing forum on the planet. I don't even think people use forums anymore. Like this is pre Facebook kind of stuff. And you could take out an ad in the warrior special offer section, uh, like a classified ad for $20 and you could advertise whatever you had there, as long as it was a special offer just for people in that forum. And by the way, I never sold this anywhere else. So of course it was a special right. offer. So I made it $4 <laughs> Mm -hmm. and I ran the ad for 20 bucks and you know when it bounced off the first page or the second page because that's how they were built back then on these forums you could re-up it for another 20 bucks and what had happened was people bought this product and it was short it was like six seven pages long four dollars and they really liked it like I don't know they just could immediately act upon it use it see a benefit from it and because this was in a forum they would post feedback like this is the first form of real social proof or social yeah. media that existed. Mm. I mean, this is pre Twitter, pre all those places, right? Right. And people really liked it. This wasn't like your normal marketing hype where you overpromise and underdeliver. Like people were getting results immediately, and so it kind of created like this snow, snowball effect. And I sold a couple thousand copies in the span of a week or Whoa. two. Yeah. Yeah. That's it was great. like eight grand in my pocket in like seven <laughs> days. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do with all this? Yeah. And I thought, you know what? What if I just find simple problems that I can solve very simply? So I call this solving one problem with one specific solution and then being able to teach it in one setting. So like the, the book was six pages. I could sit down and by the time I got up, the book was done. I could write a book in one sitting, right? So I went around and I found these different challenges, not like big challenges. Like I didn't teach people where to submit the articles. I didn't teach them how to monetize those articles. I literally just taught them how to write them faster. Uh, and so for the next right. year, I kind of collected these little one, one, one problem, one solution, one sitting. So I call them one, 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 um, these different skill sets. And I would just repeat process, repeat process. And I built up a following of people. So when I started to take bigger steps and try new things, I already had a really receptive audience to me. So the first time I ever did a webinar, I said, Hey, I got this new concept and I want to try it with a webinar. So uh, if you show up to the webinar, I'll teach it to you for free and I'll give you the recording. Uh, if you don't show up, then you don't get it and you'll pay for it later. <laughs> right. <laughs> and okay. At this point in time, uh, mm. I invited everybody for free and not a whole bunch of people showed up. I taught for four hours on a subject uh, wow. about time yeah. management. So I said, this is time management for internet marketers. Mm -hmm. I taught for four hours off of a mind map back then. This is what we would use. Like this is in 2008, I believe. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, it was an easy way to teach, but I taught for like four hours and that was uncommon back then for people to do that. And webinar was a completely new technology. Nobody was really using them or understanding them at all. 
And so I go back to the email list the next day because that's how I communicated with all my customers and say, hey, listen, you missed it. I told you I was going to charge you 47 for this. I'll give you one more chance. You can buy it for the next 24 hours for $27. And here's, by the way, the people on the webinar, here's what they said. And so the thing that they could have mm -hmm. got for free the day before, mm -hmm. the next day it was the best promotion I ever did to my audience at the time was something that they could have got for free, but didn't. And then they end up buying. And I learned, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. But even more important to me was I saw the webinar first and foremost as a fantastic interactive educational tool that I thought would be super valuable to help train and educate people with. So now that I had it, I was like, what else could I do with it? So then I launched a, what we called a, an e-class. So I invented this term called an e-class where, uh, okay. you know, once a week for X number of weeks, mm -hmm. we could get on and, and I'd train you on a subject. So I had this thing on how to write sales copy, um, copywriting sales letters on the internet. And I said, I'm going to teach you this 12 step process over 12 weeks, an hour a week for the next 12 weeks via webinars. Now I sold this not on a webinar. I sold this on a written website just with a written letter. And then I did the training and I thought, wow, what, what better way to sell a series of webinars than with a webinar? And that's when I did a mm -hmm. webinar mm -hmm. that was kind of like, Hey, if you enjoyed this, would you like to do it seven more times with me? If so, go here. It's 200 or 300 or 400 bucks, whatever we were selling. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I just worked that model for the next four or five years. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I mean, I did more wrong than right, but nobody had a manual back then or an instruction guide on how to do it. We we're making it up as we went along. And mm -hmm. I was just willing you know, I have this interesting concept, Brian, which is still non-intuitive to this day. So we're on the platform Zoom right now, right? That's what we're doing this. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Zoom brought me in at the beginning of 2019 to train their webinar users. So Zoom is now like a $19 billion company, the biggest IPO of the year, right? Um, and I'm on the training on Zoom and I'm teaching this concept. And this is a concept that's super intuitive to me, but most other people miss it. Um, We'd get on these webinars, Brian, and they, they would be, I had about an hour, hour and a half of material. So say I had 100 people on the webinar to start. Uh, and at the end, I still had like 55 people on. And let's say I sold 10 mm -hmm. products. You know, I sold 10 units, so 10 people bought. Right. And I'd say, okay, there's still 44, 45 more people that could buy on this webinar. And they ain't leaving. And they're still active in the chat. Enough of them are. They're still responding. They're still asking questions. They seem engaged. You know. My webinar service doesn't charge me by the minute. I can go as long as I want. So if they're still interested, I'll still stay on. So we would take an hour, hour and a half webinar of material and it would go three, four hours long. Wow. And I would do the math, right? if I was selling a thousand dollar product, if I made mm. one sale an hour, I was making a thousand bucks an hour. <laughs> that didn't seem like a bad trade off. Well, what I didn't yeah. realize what I mm -hmm. wasn't aware of, but which is even more valuable was I got two and a half hours of practice in the real world of material. What if I say this? What if I say that? What if I try it this way? What if I try it that way? And I'll tell you, that was the most valuable thing of all, because I had probably in the, in the span of the next three years, hundreds of hours of trying different material like a comedian does work in small nightclubs before they play Madison square garden, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I had all this material figured out and that's really where I had the huge breakthrough, but I was learning and earning at the same time. So I was making sales and making money and I was getting better. And that was the, that was the awesome thing about it. But now I'm training zoom. So this is 2019. I'm teaching them this concept and the guy running the, 
the Zoom meeting that works for Zoom, uh, we have 700 people on this call at the end. They're still engaged, right? Mm. And the guy says, okay, it's time to go wrap it up because, you know, the webinar is supposed to end at 1230. <laughs> I'm like, you didn't even listen to what I just said. Because right. uh, it's still not obvious to this day, but the concept is if they're interested in buying, I'm still interested in selling. And so I think most of us, we okay. far underestimate somebody's appetite to learn something that they're engaged in that can solve a major problem that they're facing. People will consume information far greater than what we can provide to them. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. But who goes on a four hour webinar, you know? Right. 99% of people don't, but the 1% who do, they they're make up for everybody not. else. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so Jason, um, when you were creating this process for webinars, was there a lot of inspiration that you got from like copywriting principles? Yes. I mean, that was the whole foundation of it. Um, is, right. I, and that's really where I started making money was studying copywriting. And to this day, like in order, I think of things this way. First, I think if I was to sell this one-to-one, what would that look like? So like uh, direct sales. So like, you know, either on the phone or in person, if I'm selling and I'm on one end and you're on the other end, that's the first thing that goes into my mind. So I studied a tremendous amount of salesmanship. And then the second thing was, if I had to write a letter to sell you, how would I adjust what I would say one-to-one to put it into a letter? And then finally, does it go into the webinar framework at the end of the day? So I, I studied so many copywriting principles and so many sales principles. And here's what they're missing though, is mm-hmm. how do we put this in motion? That's what I'd always ask myself. And so how would I be able to put in motion? So when I'm writing a sales letter, I get to control every single word that's said. And I could, I could agonize over every syllable if I wanted to for hours on end, hours on end, right? Yeah. Um, how do I speak that though? And speak that in a way that's natural and conversational. Like if you were to get this transcribed, Brian, and analyze the transcription, I probably have more run-on sentences here uh, than an English teacher would ever see in a semester, you know, uh, yeah. but it's fluid, smooth communication. So I'm putting into action things. Now, you know, people could read off a script, but the problem with that is twofold. One is most of us are not good at reading off a script, but making it sound natural. And two, if you have to script out every single word, it takes a tremendous amount of time and that's hard to do at scale. And mm. so I was able mm-hmm. to, really understand the fundamentals and the foundations of copy, but then make the adjustment to be able to speak copy, if you will. And I think most people, if they want to do anything and they don't have a, if they don't have either a copywriting foundation or a selling foundation, they're going to be fighting an uphill battle. Now it's great if you have both, because here's the interesting concept, Brian. Most people that are good at sales are bad at copywriting. And most people that are great at copywriting are actually horrible at face-to-face sales. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. There Mm -hmm. are differences and you have to bridge the gap between the two. Typically people gravitate towards sales because they hate writing (laughs) and they're good on their feet. Right. (laughs) And then people typically gravitate towards copywriting because, uh, they, they're very, they like to be on their own and they like to optimize and be very granular and they're not so quick on their feet. Right. Uh, and so it's fascinating because they're both the same fundamental premise of how, how you create desire, demand, how you overcome objections, how you create insight, 
paradigm shifts, things like that, how you get attention. They're almost all the same thing, but they're applied slightly differently. So then when you can appreciate the differences of application with the same principles, that's where it becomes really powerful. Because at the end of the day, it's like, I don't care what kind of communication you're doing, you have to get attention. So in selling, there's a certain way to get attention. In copywriting, there's a certain way to get attention. And on a webinar, it's pretty much the same thing. And so we need to get attention. And then we have to be captivating. So whether it's in person, in print, or on a webinar, you have to be captivating. And those things don't really differ too much, except for subtly. But understanding those subtle differences is where you can make all the difference. Are you an expert or course creator trying to monetize your online course? Well, use our one-page template to get more paying students to your online course without marketing overwhelm or sleazy sales tactics. You can download this for free at unstoppablebusiness.com. Now, back to the show. So Jason, I'm curious, uh, if you can go back to that time in 2008 when you first started that webinar with the mind map and yep. teach yourself like one skill at that younger age, what skill would that be? To sell at higher prices sooner. Oh, okay. Yeah, hmm. so... So, so here's my background, right? I grew up in Iowa in a small town in Iowa. Um, and for like a hundred grand a year, you were like rich <laughs> in <laughs> LA where I live now. Right. Yeah. You are probably homeless if you make a hundred grand a year uh, mm. It is relative. So, and I never had any money my whole life. Like I started my career where my living room was also, my bedroom was also my office. And there wasn't space to put both a floor, or there wasn't space to put both a bed and a desk. So I slept on the floor, right? Uh, that's where I came from. And so I, you know, my first product ever I sold was $4. And then I got brave and sold one for seven, then one for 17. And then I pushed the threshold up to like, that time management product I told you about was the first time ever I sold a product at $47 and then I discounted it to 27 and I gave it away for free the day before. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I had this very uneasy feeling about asking for higher prices, which is now completely flip. Um, I typically command the highest prices on the market in whatever industry we go in because I've learned the power of high pricing. Uh, there's a principle and this is a universal principle to anything. It's called uh, the Pareto principle or another name for it is called the 80-20 or another name is called the law of a vital few. And here's what it states. 20% of the inputs typically will account for 80% of the outputs. Uh, so 20% of criminals commit 80% of the crimes, right? 20% uh, of motorists cause 80% of the accidents. 20% uh, of people own 80% of the wealth. And, you know, Warren Buffett has made 90% of his money off of just 10 stocks. So the law of the vital few. There's right. only a few things that have a majority of, out, uh, of the output. So in a marketplace, 80% of your market will only account for 20% of its profit potential. And so you could serve four out of five people and you're only fighting for a thin slice of the overall pie, even though you're serving a majority of people in that market. And that's... Mm fascinating to me. So when you sell prices at 27, 37, 47, you are reaching five times the market size. But typically, you are not reaching the most powerful segment of the market. And mm. there's a whole bunch of psychology that goes into this. But the bottom line is this yeah. is just this. 
is what kind of person isn't willing to invest, say, $500 to solve a major problem? Like, let's take weight loss, for example, right? 70% um, of Americans want to lose weight. That's a huge market, right? Uh, right. Not mm -hmm. intended, right? Um, and but most of them are not willing to spend $500 or more on a coaching program to lose weight. A majority mm. of them would not spend under any circumstance could ever justify spending $500 to go through say like an eight week program mm -hmm. on, you know, the psychology of eating or any, you know, I'm just making this up, but as an example, right? What does that say to you, Brian, if somebody isn't willing to spend $500 to solve a major, major life problem? It says they're not committed enough. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to help somebody who's not committed. Mm. Now that person will pay 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 40 bucks or $50, right? Um, by the way, they'll pay that 10 times as many times as they pay $500 once. So there's a difference between cost and price, right? Uh, so they'll actually end up paying more long-term by being cheaper. Uh, but whatever, that's a whole different aside, a whole different set of psychology. But here's the thing. Do you want to sell to the person who isn't committed or the person that is committed? I definitely don't want to sell to the person who isn't committed because I can help them less. Even if I give the same information to two different people, the person that pays $500 is going to be more appreciative and more likely to use it than the person that won't pay $500, even if it's exactly the same set of information, right? Right. So it makes no sense. So earlier I gave the example of like my dad was a teacher, but he didn't get to choose who he taught to. He had to teach to everybody the same way. It's, it's legally required. No child left behind, right? Yeah. I don't care if the kid's stupid. We got to teach to him the same way we teach to the smartest kid in class. And that's nice from a societal perspective. I'm glad it actually is that way. But it's horrible for private enterprise. And so for us, it's like, I don't want to teach to 80% of the class. Somebody else can take care of them. I want the 20% that are most likely to be eager, excited, happy, receptive, successful, and where money is not a major constraint for them to move forward with their solution. So one of the benefits of having a higher price is it automatically weeds out those where high price is a constraint for moving forward towards the solution. <laughs> if you're not willing to spend $500 to solve a major life obstacle, I do not want to waste a breath in trying to help you, right? Uh, you know, obviously we're doing a free podcast. Nobody's paying for that. So you can certainly utilize as many resources as possible. But if you're paying me money, we're taking a more calculated, more deliberated, more resource from my end, intensive resource of uh, perspective. And so that's the first thing that automatically weeds it out. But the second thing is um, it's not how cheap you can make it. It's how valuable you can make it. And so usually the limitations mm -hmm. to provide breakthrough solutions come from the fact that we impose them ourselves. So if I could design a system and I could myself have a hard cost of $5,000 to develop a training program, or if I could only have a $500 hard cost to develop that training program, it's going to be tougher for me if I know you only spend 500 bucks for me to develop the best solution for you possible. Because let's say the best solution possible cost me $5,000 internally to fulfill. I can't sell it to you for $500. I'd lose $4,500 every single time, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But if I charge you $15,000 for it and it cost me $5,000 to fulfill, 
then I can make $10,000 profit. Now I will tell you, most training programs, most education products, most information, most resources, they don't invest $5,000 into their solution per customer. They invest mm -hmm. almost nothing, right? They invest time, but not money. Mm -hmm. And so I will naturally win because I will be able to provide value that is unmatchable because I'm willing to invest more than the next person. Now I will lose 99% of the market who can't pay $15,000. It's physically impossible for them without robbing a bank, right? But right. the 1% that will pay $15,000, you know, you don't need that many sales. You make 10 of those a month, you're making mm -hmm. six figures a month, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're not as famous mm -hmm. on Instagram, Brian, but right. you're probably more profitable. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's key, man. That's a big aha moment right there. <laughs> and by nice. the way, the, the same things that, you know, I'm in a mastermind that costs $100,000 a year to be in, right? Um, and it's not too different than masterminds I've been a part of that only cost $1,000 to be in. But, wow. but because there are other people in the room that have also paid a hundred thousand and it's very catered and very specific to us, it's worth every penny. Uh, but a majority of people can't fathom ever spending a hundred thousand dollars a year to be part of a mastermind. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to them. But you know, you put 10 of those in a room and you just made a million dollars. And so we don't need a lot to make a difference between us investing $100,000 or investing uh, $1,000. But if we don't have the opportunity, I guarantee you 100% of the time, you'll never get the sale if you don't ask for it. So it took me several years. It wasn't really until about 2011 where I started kind of pushing price elasticity. What is the amount of price I can, but how can I really raise the price and still mm -hmm. have happy, excited customers? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I was about three years too late to that party. <laughs> <laughs> You, you say you work with a good amount of brands, right? You work with um, big companies and you work on their webinars? Yeah, uh, it's hard, right? Um, it's funny because like with startups, I love them to death because they're super eager, but they have zero resources, right? Um, right. It, it's like they can't even make payroll at the end of the month, but they're going to change the world kind of a concept. Uh, so I love their tenacity and they're eager and they're go-getters and they're willing to try and they're really responsive, but it's very hard. Uh, big companies when we work for those, they have all the resources in the world, but they have no urgency. <laughs> They're complacent. And so the webinar is the easiest thing to create, but getting them to implement it is like, is very, very challenging because they're very familiar and comfortable with it. Uh, and so every situation has its own challenges, which is fascinating. There's a reason why big companies don't do webinars very effectively. Uh, and then there's a reason why smaller companies have trouble getting their webinars to, to, to get traction is because, mm -hmm. um, you have to be willing to do the things that most people are not comfortable doing. Um, and that's, you know, that's the first principle, but the second one too is the webinar, you have to understand the value of a webinar and then be able to deploy it resourcefully because like there's not a person alive, Brian, that I don't think I could make at least six figures a year with just this one concept. And it's this, if I wrote a webinar for you, and you mm -hmm. had the perfect audience for me. Mm -hmm. I could write 10 webinars to 10 different audiences. 
and that would be the end of it. I wouldn't have to go outside of that. So, you know, most people want to write a webinar that reaches a million people, right? I'm saying if I went to you and say, listen, I'll write the webinar, I'll say every word, I'll create the product and I'll sell it and I'll give you 50% of the profit. You just bring the audience and I'll make that offer in that webinar specific and exact only to that audience. Say you have a thousand people, right? And they all have very specific commonalities. I'll write a webinar specifically just to that audience when I'm starting out and I'll crush because nobody else is willing to go that deep. You know, like they want to jump up and down in the ocean and make a splash. It doesn't work that way. Jump up and down in puddles and you can make massive splashes. And so for most people, they could write a webinar that would do that because the power of the webinar is that it informs and it also sells in the same setting. But we have to do 60 minutes of one before we can do any of the other. I have to give you a paradigm shift in 60 minutes that will never allow you to look at your problem the same way again. If I do that, then sales become very easy. If I don't do that, then I shouldn't be able to sell you anyway because I haven't earned, earned the right to. Um, and so teaching that to big companies has a unique set of challenges. We get over them. They pay us a tremendous amount of money to do that, right? Uh, so we fight through it and we get through it. The webinar is not to constraint, though. It's getting them to adapt the webinar and use it. That's the challenge. Small companies, the constraint is they're not willing to put the resources and effort behind the webinar. Uh, but nothing happens until something gets sold. So I've seen guys spend millions of dollars on apps and software and websites and then come to us and say, we need a webinar. What's your budget? I don't have a budget. Well, that's your problem. <laughs> it don't matter how pretty it is if you can't sell it. And so people sometimes forget the fact that something has to be sold. And usually you want to test selling of the thing before you sink your life fortune into the thing. Like I had a client super sharp, multi, multi-millionaire in one in one industry in one area. And I taught him some stuff that really up leveled his game over there. And then he decided to launch this new software and this new business. They sunk a half a million dollars into it uh, without testing it at all. I said, you would have been better to spend 250,000 on it, 250,000 on the marketing and market it to your audience and literally say, I'm not even going to sell it to you. I just need you to fit this criteria in order to buy it because I need you to inform me what the software should be and how it should be shaped instead of him mm -hmm. trying to figure it out on his own, right? Same mm -hmm. amount of money. He would have had a user base, even if it was free, and he would have the best market research he could ever hope to happen because 90% of the time, we don't know what our customers want. We only know what, we, what they want when they tell us what they don't want enough times that it eliminates any other option besides what they want. <laughs> and so the software is easier to develop in that situation, right? But people view the marketing of the thing at the tail end after they've ran out of money or they, they don't view it with the importance that it should be uh, done with. So like I know guys that get books written and they pay like 30, 40, 50 grand to get a book written. Um, because they feel like, oh, I got a book. I'm going to go change the world. And then you say to them, well, how do you plan on getting that book out there and getting it read? And their eyes go glossy. Mm. They have no plan. Right. Getting the book done was their plan. Getting the book done is 5% of the overall objective, which is you got to get the book. Sure, you got to get it done. You got to get it out there, though. God, right. you got to get it read. I got a book, right? It's called What the Betty. Uh, yeah. My family hasn't read that book, right? And they love me. Mm -hmm. So even buying the book is, is a simple process, but reading the book is even the hardest part, right? So people forget because it's exciting and sexy and celebrated to have a book, but it's ugly and dirty to be out there hustling and slanging that book. Uh, that's the, that's the dark part, but 
you gotta you gotta understand and respect that otherwise you're gonna be limited by that mm, right yeah jason it seems like you really understand the psychology behind things and you really understand um everything behind um how to sell how does someone get up so obsessed with this field Great question. Oh man, I mean, you have first have to sell yourself on the value of selling. To me, it's like, it, the way I always look at it is like this, is nobody goes to a therapist and says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm a nine out of 10 on the happiness scale. I'm paying you to help me get that extra point so I can be a 10 out of a 10, right? I don't mm-hmm. think, Brian, that's happened one time in the history of, of psychotherapy, right? Mm-hmm. People go in to see a therapist because they're miserable, they're depressed, they're one step away from suicide, um, they're about ready to give up, right? That's when they go to see a therapist. And so right. when we're out there selling things that truly matter, we're selling to people that are wrecked internally, that are struggling, that are having a challenge with whatever that specific thing is. And by the way, when you're in that mindset, uh, mindset, mind state, you're not the most resourceful person. You're not the clearest thinking person. You're, you're very easily impressionable and can be, can be misled and taken advantage of as well, right? And that's what a lot of people do, unfortunately, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so if we're really good at selling, I can sell you on the fact that tomorrow will be better today in, in the face of everything telling you the opposite, Right. Because you look around and see nothing but dreariness and how bad it's been. And why should you believe it's going to be anything other than it is? And somebody like me dares enough to sell you on the idea that tomorrow might be greater today. And I also sell you on the fact of believing in yourself that you can do this thing when you don't believe in yourself, right? Uh, that's, right. that's why selling is the highest paid profession in the world when done right and the lowest paid profession in the world when done wrong. <laughs> but it's 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 very clear you know it's like i always liked individual sports brian over team sports like uh, you know like i was a wrestler so you either beat the other person or they beat you like in football american football there's 11 people on each side there's 22 people on the field right you could play the best game ever and you would still lose or you could play the worst game ever and you could still win because other people on your team picked up your slack or they cost the game I like to be in situations where I'll know at the end of the day exactly how valuable I was or wasn't. And selling is one of those cases. We knew exactly. I mean, you either get a sell or you don't get a sell. And by the way, a maybe is a no. So it doesn't count. And that's what I like about it. Because if I can sell you on working towards a better tomorrow when everybody, including yourself, has given up on you, mm. what nobler profession is there than that? Uh, and if, and I have responsibility too, because if I don't sell you and somebody else that does sell you victimizes you, I can't control what your experience is like when you buy up my competitor's product. I can only control what your experience is like when you buy my product. So I feel obligated to sell you my product because to allow you to make a decision to buy somebody else's product that I know is inferior is reckless at best. And so if you're, mm-hmm. if you're sold on that concept, then learning the tactical art of sales becomes very rudimentary, becomes very simple. 
because you're so leveraged to want to learn it, then you'll sit down. And then that's when you can do things. Like what I did was I, I would write a sales close down a day on a three by five note card. Uh, so I would get a book from the library uh, or somewhere, a sales book. I find a close I like for that day, write it down on a three by five note card. And by the end of the day, I'd have it memorized. And I did that every day for six months. So I had 180 closes memorized within six months. Uh, you'll do that once you're sold on the, the bigger picture. Now, if you do memorize those quotes, you'll become a machine. Uh, people think you get confident after you make a bunch of sales, but it doesn't actually work that way. First, you become confident that you can make the sales. And then because you're confident, that's why you actually make those sales. <laughs> right. uh -huh. People miss that. But how do you become confident? You say it close 150 times, even if it's to your face in the mirror and nobody else, and you will feel different inside. You will actually feel confident. So when somebody says, well, that costs too much. And you can look at them in the eye and say, you're right. It does cost too much to the wrong person but are you the wrong person or are you the right person? You could right. say that without breaking a sweat. Natural <laughs> is breathing, right? And I've done that yeah. close a hundred times in real life, right? Mm. And they say, what do you mean? The right person, wrong person. Well, I don't know. Let's take a look at that. Now you've reframed the conversation from does it cost too much or not? That's a, that's a one of many ways that you can handle a cost objection, right? Mm. And that's yeah, just one element. Handling objections is just uh, one element of a bigger picture of sales. But unless you're totally committed mm -hmm. to the concept of how powerful and life-changing sales are, then you're, you're not going to win. Uh, but once you are, then that's why I would suggest that you go to the higher level. So it's like sales serves marketing. Uh, my book was called One to Many because I don't want to sell one to one. It's inefficient if I can sell one to many. So a webinar, whether there's one person on it or there's a million people on it, I have about the same selling power. And so it's more effective than once you learn it on a one-to-one -one scale, generalize it to a one-to-many scale. And that's when you really can disrupt for good. You can move markets completely regardless of who you are. I mean, we've done things in Amazon. Amazon's the biggest e-commerce company in the world, right? 25% uh, of money flows in and out of Amazon on the internet. And we have been so effective at helping people become successful on Amazon that Amazon has had to change policy. So, you know, a little kid from Iowa wow. yeah. was able to disrupt mm. how the biggest e-commerce giant in the world, right? A little farm boy from Iowa was able to go in and train <laughs> Zoom, biggest IPO of the year, right? Yeah. Nothing's impossible when you understand that concept, regardless of who you are. But until you under, understand that concept, everything else is way harder than it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, what's your vision? What's your five to 10 year vision from now? Yes, great question. Um, I have decided to go more front stage again. Uh, okay. So the last few years, I've been more backstage. What I mean by that is working with these companies and installing my marketing into their business and very lucrative, right? But I don't have the same impact as if I'm front stage. So I just got back from Germany. Um, I spoke at the largest digital marketing conference in the whole country and I keynoted the thing, right? Mm. And that was really cool. Um, but it reminded me of that there's this personal connection it's not just what you say or how you say it, but it's who's saying it. And I just feel right now, Brian, that the internet is where it used to be. What I mean by that is when the internet first started, it was chaotic. And then out of chaos comes order. And we had some order for a little bit, right? 
-hmm. but out of order comes chaos. This is the natural evolution of things. Out of chaos comes order and out of order comes chaos. And it's chaotic right now. There are more, there are big social media sites when there's more of them than ever. And they're all fighting for your attention. And people are now kind of addicted to the dopamine hits of social media. And they're on YouTube and they're on Facebook and they're on Instagram. And now the kids are on TikTok, right? And it's, Right. It's incredible how intermeshed the internet is into everybody's life. And there's more podcasts than ever for somebody to listen to for free. There are more YouTube's uh, videos of super high quality than ever that exist. Right. Right. It's mm-hmm. crazy though. And mm-hmm. so what happens is everybody is now fragmented. They're confused. They're, they're frustrated. They don't know who to follow. Everybody's kind of niched down to this very, very, they bunker down. And so I see this opportunity to help, set some things straight because i'm like neo in the matrix is like i'm seeing i'm seeing issues and challenges that people have that i know exactly how to solve but we're Mm. not showing up in the places they're looking because we've been so busy being backstage helping and impacting you know via a third party uh and it's calling me the marketplace is calling me back so i'm going to go back and reclaim the territory that i left and do it in a bigger better way because you know, when we started this business, Brian, it was like, you could even post marketing information on YouTube because they would consider mm. you a scammer just for teaching any digital marketing stuff. Right. Right. Now, you know, Facebook sponsored the conference that I spoke at in Germany. And wow. now, now, now it's, you mm. know, Zoom is a teleconferencing slash webinar platform is the biggest IPO of the year. Not Uber, you know, Zoom. And now it's mainstream. It's not digital marketing, it's marketing. You start marketing online first and everything else is secondary, right? And so it's like, I feel like I can have a bigger impact now. We're not so marginalized and so niche but you know, there's trade-offs there. There's a reason why um, I never really was attracted to the spotlight. I did it out of necessity. Um, Sometimes it gets in the way of things I feel, but I just feel this calling. So the next three to five years is me going out there uh, and not becoming the most well-known or liked on Instagram or what have you, right? But to have that impact directly with training products, software, coaching programs, because uh, we've created hundreds of those over our life uh, cycle in our business. Uh, but recently, we've been doing more services. So we're switching back, switching back to mm. the knowledge business again. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs>